0: And so let's start this morning by looking at the events that occurred today. Luke 19, beginning with verse 28, we read that as Jesus went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem, it came to pass that as he drew near Bethpage and Bethany, suburbs of Jerusalem, arriving at the mount called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village opposite you. When you enter, you will find a colt tied up on which no one has ever sat. Loose it, bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Say to them, because the Lord has need of it. Which works, you know, go steal a donkey. Say, the Lord has need of it. Don't try that with a car. Like, don't. <laughs> so those who were sent, which we know were Peter and John, went their way, found it just as Jesus said. They loosed the colt. The owner said, why are you loosing the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of him. So they followed Jesus' direction. They bring the colt to Jesus. They threw their clothes on the colt. They set Jesus on him. And he went, heading to Jerusalem. And as he went, they spread their clothes out on the road. And as he was drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and to praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if, you, that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. And as he drew near, he saw the city, and he begins to weep over it. Saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace. But now these things are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation. If you'd pray with me, Father. We ask that as we examine the importance of this particular event, Palm Sunday, your triumphal entry, that you would speak to us by the power of your Holy Spirit through your written word. In Jesus' name, amen. On October 1st, 1932, something would take place that would not only become the subject of great debate, but would go down as one of the most iconic, famous moments and baseball history. After taking the first two games of the World Series, and with the score all tied four in the fifth inning, game three, New York Yankees slugger Babe Ruth stepped into the box to face Chicago Cubs hurler Charlie Root. As the story goes, after Ruth took strike one, the Cubs bench erupted, ruthlessly heckling the Bambino while the hometown fans joined in voraciously berating him with insults, annoyed, angered, upset, more determined than ever to silence his detractors. Ruth did something shocking. As the story goes, he held up his hand and pointed to the center field bleachers. Now, he repeated the action. After taking strike two, more insults came his way, but the next pitch. Ruth's next pitch was a hanging curveball that the famed slugger had no problems handling. The salt in the swat swung, connecting with the pitch. And as the ball sailed through the air, as Ruth slowly trotted towards first base, as the crowd sat in stunned silence, Thousands of fans could hear over the radio the famed, iconic voice of Tom Manning screaming, the ball is going, 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 high into the center field stands. It's a home run. Root was left in the game, but only for one pitch, which Lou Gehrig subsequently drilled into the right field seats for his second homer of the day. The Yankees would win the game 7-5, and the next day complete the four-game sweep over the demoralized Chicago Cubs. Ruth's homer that day would have largely gone unnoticed if it wasn't for reporter Joe Williams. His headline that evening in the New York World Telegram read, Ruth Calls Shot, as he put home run number two in side pocket. And almost immediately, the event spread though recently discovered film of this iconic game, as well as eyewitness testimony, does prove that Ruth indeed pointed his finger. There's been debate as to where he was pointing his finger and to whether or not he was calling his shot. However, whether the story is truth or lore, one thing is abundantly clear. The phrase, calling your shot, entered the American lexicon as the result of this event and now has come to indicate the bravado of a person who heralds an accomplishment before he even acts, calling your shot. I mention this because the events of Palm Sunday, known as the triumphal entry, are akin to Jesus calling his shot as he began the final week of his earthly ministry. We know as the week of passion, Jesus entered Jerusalem. The event we just read, riding a donkey, declaring himself for all who would listen, the victor. But you notice he did this before he had actually done anything to declare a victory. It was indeed a triumphal entry, but a triumphal entry for what? It's as though as Jesus entered Jerusalem, the champ called his shot before ever throwing a punch. Now, before we unpack the significance of this event, this day, I want to provide you an outline for the week. We were beginning the week of passion, felt it might be helpful to give you just kind of an outline. Today, Palm Sunday, Jesus' triumphal entry. Tomorrow, Jesus would enter the temple and cleanse the temple of the money changers. Tuesday, there would be a showdown, a battle royale between Jesus and the religious leaders. Wednesday, we have no idea what Jesus did. It seems to be a day of rest. Thursday, which we call Monday, was the preparations for the Passover, kind of concluding in the Seder dinner that night. Friday, Good Friday, would be Jesus'. Prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, arrest, trial, and crucifixion, all would happen on Friday. Saturday, which was the Sabbath, the body of Jesus lay dead in the tomb. Sunday, being Easter, was Resurrection Day. And keep in mind that as you're tracking through the events of this week, that the Jewish calendar, the way they marked the beginning and the end of days, fit more within the creation account. For us, it's kind of uh, morning and evening make a day. For them, it was evening and morning. The day started at 6 p.m., sunset, and then we conclude at the same time the next day. So there's some overlap, sometimes leads to confusion, but gains clarity when you lay it out as such. Now, in order to understand the backdrop for our text this morning, the text we read, you need to keep in mind that Jews from all over the Roman world, all over the empire, had come to Jerusalem this day to begin the celebration of a feast known as Passover. Passover was one of the three required pilgrimage feasts. Pentecost and Tabernacles were the other two. And Passover, as a feast, was instituted by God to be a memorial set aside to recognize his liberating of the Hebrew people out from under the bondage and captivity of the Egyptians. Passover was a celebration of God's deliverance. Though Passover wouldn't officially begin till 6 p.m. on Thursday evening, like Jesus, it was customary for pilgrims to arrive the Sunday before this Sunday, which meant that the population of Jerusalem had swelled to incredible numbers, numbers the city wasn't really set up to handle. 500,000 approximately the normal population of Jerusalem had ballooned, and upwards of two to three million pilgrims coming to the city to celebrate the feast. So, as Jesus makes his way through Bethany, Bethpage, the Mount of Olives, into the city itself, the atmosphere of Jerusalem is electric. And it's electric, it's energized for two reasons. First, since it was the week of Passover, the people would have been naturally celebratory. They would have been patriotic. They would have been festive. This marked when God delivered them from the Egyptians. Would be somewhat like the 4th of July, shooting off fireworks, celebrating, wearing our American flag t-shirts. I mean, it was, it was patriotic. It was symbolic. People were excited and pumped up. As the crowd was entering the city, they would have been singing. From the Hallel Psalms, Psalms 113 and 118, I'd encourage you to read them this week, as well as the Psalms of Ascent, which are Psalms 120 through Psalms 134. So they're singing these songs, they're patriotic, they're celebratory, they're festive, they're remembering God's deliverance, which was important. Why? Because right now they're under captivity. It's not the Egyptians, it's the Romans, which meant that because now of the increased population and the patriotic nature of the gathering and the continued unrest that was common in Judea, the Roman authorities during Passover, as the population swelled, they were on edge. First century Jewish historian Josephus says that the increased Roman presence for Passover in Jerusalem would have been 10 times the normal. Now, to make matters worse, the swarming crowds were filled with a unique anticipation concerning this man, Jesus. The rumor mill had been churning. People had been talking. Some had been heralding him as the Messiah, the Christ. What would happen? No one really knew. Now, what's truly interesting about Palm Sunday was not necessarily the reaction of the crowd. The reaction of the crowd was was fairly normal. I mean, the conditions for such an outburst, for such an occasion, we can understand. To me, what's shocking about Palm Sunday wasn't the reaction of the crowd, but was instead the fact that Jesus not only allowed that reaction, but in many ways encouraged all of the fanfare. And why is that abnormal? You see, as you study the life of Jesus, you will notice that time and time again, Jesus actively and repeatedly discouraged public praise and adulation. When the crowds would get jazzed up because of something Jesus did, he would typically like disappear. He would send the crowds away. He would get into a boat and he would go to an area where there was no one. He tempered down expectations, excitement, but In this instance, not only does he allow this praise, but he intentionally orchestrates the events to garner attention. He set it all up. He sent two disciples ahead, go get a cult. Don't worry, you're not stealing it. It's already set up. Just get it, bring it to me. I have need of it. This is all part of my plan. He openly embraced and actively encouraged all of this fanfare. And because of the start, break and protocol, you have to consider why. What was it about this moment that set it aside from every other moment to come before it? Such as Jesus would reject praise, but now he would command it. The answer? His arrival marked the moment that Jesus was officially presenting himself to Israel as their Messiah, as their king. It would appear, by Jesus' response to the request of the religious leaders to command the multitudes to stop praising him, that this kingly reveal had been his very intention. Jesus told them, he said, I tell you that if these should keep silent, speaking of the crowd, his disciples, He says the stones, and there's a lot of them, would immediately cry out. That indicates something significant happening. His intentions then move from being subtle to even more direct as he gets closer to the city and does something weird. He's a king coming into his city. It's the plan. He's descending from the Mount of Olives. He's about to make his way into the city. And what does he do? He begins to weep. He begins to cry, and he says, if you had known, even you, especially, and you might want to underline this, in your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes, for days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment. This is a prophecy, will surround you, will close you in on every side. They're going to level you and your children within you to the ground. They will not leave one stone left upon another because and you might want to underline this as well, you did not know the time of your visitation. You see, in order to understand what Jesus meant by these three phrases, the stones would cry out, in your day, or you didn't know the time of your visitation, you have to place this event, this triumphal entry of Jesus into the city in context to a prophecy that had been given to Daniel. Now, Daniel was one of the young Jewish men who had been exiled to Babylon following Nebuchadnezzar's siege of Jerusalem. And while in exile, a man who loved God, Daniel was deeply concerned that because of of his people's rebellion, because of their wickedness, because of their constant resistance to the will of God, that this being exiled, what Babylon had done, what Nebuchadnezzar had instigated, had not only been Well, the hand of God, but now God very well might have been done with Israel. That God was wiping his hands of the people. So, in order to calm his fears and temper his concerns, in order to let Daniel know, I'm not done with Israel, I still have a plan, this is part of my plan, I have a future plan, God gives Daniel a prophetic vision concerning his future dealings with Israel. We know this as Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy, and it's found in chapter 9. I'll read it for you. A couple verses. Daniel 9, verses 24 and 26. The Lord said to Daniel, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city, the Jews in Jerusalem, to, and this is what will be accomplished, finish the transgression to make an end of sins to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, to anoint the most holy. A lot of things God is still planning to do, right? Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again, and the wall even in troublesome times. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end of it shall be with a flood. Until the end of war, desolations are determined. Now, now we're not gonna get into all the the nitty gritty concerning this particular prophecy. We could actually do a nine part study on this 70 weeks prophecy. But for our purposes, there are three things from the text that I'd like to bring to your attention, three components I think will help your understanding of not only what God is revealing to Daniel, but how this then plays into our triumphal entry, the day known as Palm Sunday. First, notice God says 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. This, this phrase, 70 weeks, can be translated as 70 groupings of seven. And in context, it would appear to be 70 groupings of seven years. God is telling Daniel, I have a plan for Israel. I'm not done with Israel. I'm not done for my people and for Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, my timeline will be 490 years. 490 years. 70 sets of seven years. 490 I have set aside in regards to wrapping up all of my handlings Of these people. So 490 years set a timeline. Then note, the timeline would begin. So 490 years are determined. I'll let you know when these 490 years start. He said it would begin with, quote, the command to restore and build Jerusalem. That's significant. Why? Jerusalem at this moment is lying in waste. Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the city, exiled the people. So this 490-year calendar timeline would begin with a command allowing the people to return and rebuild their city. Now, this prophetic event would become a, a fact of history when, according to Nehemiah 2, verse 1, Persian king Artaxerxes issued a command allowing the Jews to return on March 14th, 445 B.C. So 490 years are determined... And then we're given the date, when it all starts. This command as a fact of history, March 14, 445 BC. Now, the third component is from the command, according to our text, until what important event? So from the command until the arrival of Messiah the Prince would be, quote, seven weeks and 62 weeks. Now, that's kind of a confusing way of doing a little math. 7 plus 62 equals now 69 sets of 7 years, 483 years. From this command, March 14, 445 B.C., the Messiah would arrive in the city. Or approximately 173,880 days, which is important because you got to deal with some calendar issues. The Babylonian calendar, 360 days. And then you get the, the, the Roman calendar, which changed a little bit. Now, what all this means is that according to Daniel's prophecy and the timeline that God provided, exactly 173,880 days from March 14th, 445 BC, the Messiah would be presented to the people of Israel. You know when that happened in the event we just read. See Palm Sunday is a significant day in God's prophetic plan for Israel. For on the exact day, 173,880 days from March 14th, 445 BC, April 6th, 32 AD, Jesus strolled into Jerusalem on a donkey, presenting himself as the Messiah. Which then explains why Jesus so strongly and sternly rebuked the religious leaders. As the experts of the Old Testament scriptures, they had no excuse for not knowing the Messiah would be appearing on that day, quote, the day of their visitation. That morning, their eye calendar should have popped. Their phone should have chimed. It's the day. There's no mystery here. Today's the day. We need to keep an eye out. The Messiah is going to be presenting himself, which is why, as Jesus is riding in on a donkey, and people are crying, Hosanna, Hosanna, the King. And the religious leaders are like, You need to tell them to be quiet. Jesus is like, If I did, because this is my day, the rocks would cry out. This is bigger than you. This is going down. You're not stopping it. As Jesus travels from the Mount of Olives, down the Kidron Valley, back up into Jerusalem, the people begin to shout. They begin to proclaim Jesus as their coming king. Look at it again. Luke says, The whole multitude of the disciples, this celebratory rejoicing crew of people, they begin to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. According to John and Mark's account, they were also declaring, Hosanna, blessed is the king. And Matthew adds that it was Hosanna, the the son of David, blessed is the king. This phrase, Hosanna, it literally means save now. What's amazing to me about the triumphal entry is that while it's true that Jesus was officially presenting himself to Israel as their Messiah, according to Daniel's prophecy, the multitude, while crying out that he's the king, didn't fully understand the implications of what they were saying, and the religious leaders refused them still. Understanding why Jesus was presenting himself as the king is paramount to understanding His greater purpose. These people, though they recognize Jesus as their Messiah, they're crying out, they're worshiping, kind of sets them aside from the religious leaders. Why are they crying out? Why are they excited? Why are they filled with anticipation? Well? They were looking for Jesus as the Messiah to do what God had done thousands of years before, to liberate them from Roman occupation, just like he had liberated them from Egyptian captivity. But the reality is that as the Messiah, Jesus had not come to do that and instead was entering the city to liberate them from the bonds of sin. Jesus had a much bigger work of liberation than they imagined. And they didn't get it. As a matter of fact, John, the apostle John, he concedes that in this moment, as this is happening, they're utterly clueless. Like, they really don't get it. He admits it. John 12, verse 16, he says that they did not understand these things at first. As a matter of fact, it wasn't until Jesus was glorified So after the resurrection that they remembered these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. By revealing himself to the nation of Israel on this day, not only is Jesus fulfilling this Old Testament prophecy, but doing it four days before Passover would begin was in and of itself fascinating, important, significant. For in doing so, Jesus was not just presenting himself as a king. He was presenting himself as the Passover lamb. Now, now to understand that, I just want to take a moment, and I'm not going to read all of it, but I'm going to skip through a a bit of Exodus 12. The original instituting of Passover, we're told that the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and the land of Egypt. And he said, this month shall be your beginning of months, and it shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb. According to the house of his father, a lamb for the household. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a a male in the first year. Fast forward now, you shall keep the lamb until the fourteenth day. So select the lamb on the tenth, hold it to the fourteenth of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. They shall take some of the blood, put it on the doorpost, and on the lintel of the house where they eat it. It is the Lord's Passover, we're told. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike all of the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Then we're told that now the blood of the lamb shall be assigned to you and on the house where you are and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. It's where we get Passover. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So this day shall be to you a memorial. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, which is why they're all gathering, as an everlasting ordinance. Now, choosing to present himself as the Messiah on Palm Sunday was not an accident for it's four days before Passover, the very day when the Passover lamb would be selected for the sacrifice. Revealing himself, Jesus choosing this grand unveiling, this triumphal entry on this day in particular, this day of all days, it was designed to indicate that as the Messiah, as the king, He had been selected by God. He had been presented before the people to be the perfect Passover sacrifice chosen to atone for the sins of mankind. It's what makes this day so significant. You should also note that they were to select on the 10th day, wouldn't sacrifice to the 14th. And over these four days, according to the law, the time would be set aside for the family not only to identify and connect with the lamb itself, but also for the lamb to be examined so that it would be proven spotless. Jesus will spend the next four days in Jerusalem as their Passover lamb being inspected, and we see that he is shown at the end of it to be clean, to be sinless. This in mind, Jesus' triumphal entry, it's not triumphal because of what he had done. It was triumphal because of the work he had come to do. Jesus arrived, allowed the multitudes to hail him king, and in a sense, he was calling his shot. He was the perfect lamb of God. He had come to Jerusalem to pay, to atone for the sins of the world on the cross. You know, as I ponder this day, I'm always struck by how resisting the religious leaders were to what was happening right before their eyes. They knew Jesus was presenting himself not only as the Messiah. I'm convinced they understood the significance of him presenting himself as a Passover lamb, and yet they rejected him anyway. The religious leaders knowingly rejected Jesus as their Messiah. They were not ignorant. There had been a mountain of evidence presented going all the way back to his birth, when the wise men come and they're like, we're here for the king of the Jews. And Herod's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. He goes to the scribes, the religious leaders. He's like, fill me in. And they're like, we have no idea what you're talking about. No, even then they said, well, he's to be born in Bethlehem. From his birth, there were warning signs, flares. They were to know they could not stand ignorant. So why did they reject Jesus as not only their king, but the sacrifice to atone for sin. When they knew it, why? You know, it's the same reasons many of us do. Jesus was a threat to their authority, wasn't he? That's why they resisted him. He was a threat to the authority, the power that they had. I mean, if they conceded that Jesus was the Messiah, the implications were more than they were willing to accept for (laughs) Well, if he was king, he also, by default, possessed authority over them to tell them what they could or couldn't do. You know, people reject Jesus in a lot of instances, not because they don't know who Jesus is, but because they don't want to submit to his authority. People want to rule. We want to rule our own lives. We want to be the captain of our own ship, the master of our own destiny. People want to call their own shots. Do what they want when they want to. Isn't it true that at the core of man's rebellion has always been his desire to be his own God? When Satan whispered in the ear of Eve, it wasn't just that the fruit looked good, it's that if she ate it, she would be like whom? God. I can be my own master. You see, knowing if if they were to accept Jesus as their king, these men knew that they would also have to accept his authority and that his authority override their own. It explains why so many people resist. But you know, beyond the fact that Jesus was a threat to their authority, I think they rejected Jesus because he was a threat to their way of living. You know, under Roman rule, the Jewish leaders had done very well for themselves. Now, the people at large hadn't, but because of the way that Rome governed, allowing a little bit of autonomy, self-governance, the religious leaders had pillaged the people and Rome allowed them to do it. Like Jesus was a threat to their way of living. He had become a political liability. His popularity threatened a a revolution which would then bring upon Rome's wrath, which would then deter their particular status. Life was good for the religious establishment, and the things Jesus was doing was going to mess it all up. I've also found that people reject Jesus, not just because they don't want to submit to an authority, but they don't want their way of living to change. They like their life the life of sin, their life of rebellion. They haven't reached the point of understanding that they make a miserable God. Like understand that when you surrender your life to Jesus, by default, the entire direction of your life has just changed. Like you've been on one path, heading one destination, and then you stopped. You recognized This ends in in, in my ruining. I sense it. I see it. There has to be a better way. And you about face, you change directions, and you head back towards the God who created you. When you do that, life does change. The path changes. The company changes. A lot changes in that moment. And people don't like that. When you follow Jesus, it it, it does require, in certain instances, that friends will leave you. Friends are like, that path, not for me. I still like this big, wide one. And the one you're taking is kind of narrow and difficult. And we like our friends, and we don't want that to change. We don't want our lifestyle to be affected. We don't want our behaviors to be adjusted. People reject Jesus because they, they love sin. Their way of living. And for many, Jesus is rejected because they prefer to live without his nagging influence. That thing, the conscience. You know, thirdly, I think people reject Jesus like these religious leaders because Jesus specifically upends our religious moralism. These men, these religious leaders the Christian coalition of the day, the religious right, the churchgoers, the Bible thumpers, these guys had established a whole religious system that combined scripture with their own traditions and they took pride. They found security and the reality they were really good at obeying them and everyone else wasn't, which made them holy, everyone else wicked. It made them better than everyone else. They found pride. They had security. And yet Jesus, he hated it, didn't he? I mean, for the sinner, Jesus never had really strong words for. He came and he sympathized and he related and he hung with. The strongest words Jesus had in his whole ministry was towards these religious leaders. Because they had created a system that was flawed, that failed. Through his teaching, he openly opposed Their religion claiming that it produced only false morality. His activities showed an open disregard for their traditions, his associations. He contrasted their uh, bigotry, their judgmental attitude by hanging out with sinners. Like the difference between them and you is that they know their loss and you're blind to the reality. They're closer to salvation than you because at least they're humble. You know, sadly, many people reject Jesus because they don't want to admit their need for help and they found security in religion. But here's the danger. Religion has never saved a soul because religion establishes the framework whereby man seeks to achieve God's approval without God's involvement. And that is impossible. For many, acknowledging a divine need of help is seen as a sign of being weak. Human weakness, God, church, is viewed by many as being a crutch for the weak. Robbie Zacharias, he said it this way. He says, a man rejects God neither because of intellectual demands or because of the scarcity of evidence. A man rejects God because of a moral resistance that refuses to admit his need for God. I want to be God. And in order for me to accept God, Jesus is Godship, I have to admit I'm a bad God. And I don't want to do it. You know, the essential first step of salvation is that you have to admit your need of a savior. These religious leaders had not only resisted Jesus' kingship on this Palm Sunday, but they rejected his offering to be their permanent atoning sacrifice, his sacrifice for sin. These men didn't reject Jesus on the basis of a lack of truth, a lack of evidence, some glaring inconsistency. These men rejected Jesus because they refused to submit to his authority over their lives. They refused to humble themselves and admit that they needed help, a savior. They refused to accept that life change comes with following Jesus. Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is an important day. It's a significant day. For it's the day that we recognize that Jesus entered Jerusalem and he called his shot by presenting himself to the world as king, but as a king who had come to willingly lay down his life as a Passover sacrifice. In writing about this very event, the prophet Zechariah, Chapter 9, verse 8, he wrote, look at it. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Why? Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and what? Riding on a donkey. What did he have? What was he bringing? What had the king come to give? Salvation. Not salvation from Rome, but salvation from the bondage of sin. In conclusion, calling a shot. Calling a shot is only viewed with admiration. If once the shot has been called, the person proves able to successfully follow through, right? I mean, if after taking his hand and pointing to the center field bleachers. Babe Ruth then hit a dribbler to the shortstop, an easy out at first base. I can guarantee you, not only would the story have, found, have not found its ways into the annals of baseball history, but the Cubs, the bench, the fans, oh, they would have ridiculed Babe Ruth even more brutally than they had to start with. And you know, he would have been deserving. He shut him up. Because he called his shot and he made good on this day. The day we're gathering this morning, this Palm Sunday. Many, many years ago, Jesus called his shot. And if he failed to follow through, you're free to jeer. However, don't forget that the events that mark Palm Sunday are known as a triumphal entry for a reason. I pray that you'll join us, Good Friday, that you'll come out on Easter and bring a friend because we're gonna continue to look at this important narrative. Jesus comes into the city, he calls his shot, he had come to save, he was king, but he would lay down his life for you and for me. And that important narrative, it's significant. Because what Jesus would do on Good Friday, what he would do by surrendering himself to the cross of Calvary, what would happen three days later when the stone would be rolled away to show that it was empty, that Jesus was alive, that he was indeed victorious. Those events show that Jesus not only pointed and not only called it, but he then proved able, which leaves the decision to you. Do you want to follow him or jeer? And so, Father, Lord, we ask,